I think there is something that we can all agree on. We love going to Israel. We hate traveling to get there. And if it seems to you that going there is quicker than coming back, you're not imagining, and it's not just going to vacation is better than actually coming back from one kind of thing. Going there is actually faster. From Canada, the flight to Israel is quicker because the plane is traveling both in the same direction as the rotation of the world and also along with the wind currents. The flight back travels against both the rotation of the world and against the wind, and so it really is two hours longer. And while for me, as I'm sure for most of you, that most of the time the flight back is a 13-hour exercise in patience and proper book planning reading. This past trip, the one that I took in early April, left me arriving in Toronto strangely blissful. And it wasn't because I slept or caught a good, well, five good movies or a good book. For the first time in a very long time, I was simply suspended in my mind. I was in the space of thinking, which began with me remembering something that I had forgotten, which wasn't my keys or my phone, which I happened to lose all the time. No, decades earlier, I remember standing, having standed in the very same spot, staring at the very same sky, which the night had given the stars room to shine, and I remember just how transfixed I was. The Dead Sea area, which is the lowest spot on the face of the earth, is not only a collection spot for a salt and fresh water mixture, unlike anywhere else in the world, but also because it is so low, the evening sky looks different there than anywhere else in the world. Imagine the evening sky lining the inside of a bowl and all the stars in the heaven being wrapped and warped inside of it. It's unlike anything I had ever seen. And one scene you can't forget it. And it happened the second time in my life. Separated by more than 30 years, just two weeks ago. Many of you have asked me how my trip to Israel was. Well, here it goes. Many of you know that I was in Israel early, earlier this month on a special fundraiser which raised well over a half a million dollars, thanks to you, this remarkable congregation, to benefit both this congregation and an Israeli wounded warrior program called Achim Lechayim, Brothers for Life. The program's idea was a four-day recreation of a beret march that is using the Israeli army to complete a combat soldier's basic training. The details differ from unit to unit, but they all follow the same general format. You begin at nightfall, you complete it in one day. You carry all of your own equipment, water and supplies. It runs anywhere from 54 to 92 kilometers. And at the end, you receive your divisional beret, which has its own particular color. In the army, you build up over to this over the course of three months, slowly accruing the marching strength to accomplish this, we had four days. Eighteen Torontonians, nearly half from this congregation, met in Tel Aviv on a Sunday in early April and embarked to the outskirts of Arad in southern Israel to begin. That evening after dinner, 
it started. And for most, it was a shocking entry. Uniforms and boots and shirts and equipment were handed out. It all had to be signed for, just like in the IDF. And then standing in order and attention, our respect for time was thrust on us. How much time, we were asked, do you need to put your uniform on? We said three minutes. It took us five. So we were told to strip down and do it all over again. Four tries later, we did it in 97 seconds. And with that, we were beginning to understand the value of time, which was echoed in words that were shared with me 30 years earlier. Hazman Shachakadosh, that in the army, time is holy. Because the French Emperor Napoleon, who knew a thing about winning wars and also about losing them, was once asked the key reason as to why wars are lost. And he answered it by saying it in two words. Too late. When something happens too late, when you miss an opportunity, when you're a second off the moment, that something precious can be lost because all of life is about time. And it's true in general, and it's very true about the military. Seconds can count in ways that are profoundly and deeply material. The first night was followed by a day that could only be described as painful. Full equipment, carrying food and water and supplies and backpacks that ranged to nearly 50 pounds. 22 grueling kilometers over terrain that was shifting, rocky, unforgiving to ankles, feet, knees, and backs. And as that day was drawing to a close, after nearly 10 hours of marching, the pain of that last kilometer was buffeted by the sight of our night camp. We could see it in the distance. Waiting for us there were beds and food and campfire and cold beer. And everyone began to smile and relax. Only we stopped at the entrance. And our instructor asked us if we were mentally okay. And everyone, of course, answered yes. He then led us back to the path that we had come from. But this time carrying stretchers with sandbags on top for another kilometer. We then crawled back to the camp. And it was the quietest I had ever seen this group be. That evening offered up another important lesson the Army can give you. There is always something more inside. Because when you think that you're at your end, you're not. The strength that you need in life is often hidden from you. But it's there. But many of you know that. It's why you're here today on Yizkor. The next day, the desert, with his punishing rocks and slopes and heights, waited for us again. But this is the path that we had chosen to take. Arad is in the heart of the Judean desert. And in planning this Massah, this march, my heart told me that if we were to understand the forming of not the land, but the people who made this land, that we must travel south. We had to go through the desert to go back from whence we came. Because we are not a people named after a land. Israel is a land named after a people. And it, that is the land where we began. So some think that the actual name for Zion, Zion, comes from the word Tzia, 
which means dry land. To walk in the desert is to realize that it is empty and yet full. It is dry, but it is not lifeless. It is harsh, but the desert is enduringly beautiful. And as we walked, it occurred to me that nearly all of the world's great religions came from the desert. From Muhammad to Jesus, from Buddha, all have gone through the monstrous enormity of a desert wilderness. And we were walking through a landscape that was carved 400 million years ago with boulders and rocks that are strewn across a sandstone floor. On the mountains and hills, there are no trees or grass. And its nakedness reveals from where it came. The smashing of tectonic plates. The dissipation of water hundreds of millions of years ago that dried this area out, crushing the limestone and making valleys and craters. The Bedouin call these areas El T, which is the wilderness of the wandering. But as Tolkien said, not all those who wander are lost. And the enormity of the place says something. And I want to share that with you this morning. One of our greatest fears is feeling small. As a result, we want to live in big homes and have big titles and try to do things that are great and noticed, things that grab the attention of as many people as possible to fight, fight against the creeping awareness that we are small. And if we are small, then maybe we are disposable. And if we are disposable, then maybe we can be forgotten. These fears are magnified by a world of media where people are suddenly famous and then they're not famous. Where one gift can elevate a person to notoriety and then one weakness can tear them down, leaving you years later to sit down at your computer and in a free moment type in, whatever happened to Danny Partridge? But there exists another kind of smallness that isn't crushing that this feeling of being small doesn't make us fear that we're alone or lost, of being forgotten or being worthless. In fact, this feeling of being small does the exact opposite. In the face of nature, which is mighty and powerful, that we realize that we are still profoundly limited, that we are creatures with great weaknesses, but that we are also a part of something so beautiful that we can't help but feel both limited and limitless, all at the same time. And this is found in the desert. Is it any surprise, really, any surprise at all, that it was here that Moses heard God's voice? And as I walked those kilometers, I wondered, how can't you hear God's voice here? Or maybe better said, if you can't hear God here, where can you hear God? Listen, we know that this world is filled with tragedy that befalls the good, that loving and kind people die, that the frail and young are made victims. And I know that we can't understand why, but there are places in this world that remind us of the awesome power that fills the universe, of things that shape oceans and chisel mountains, that lights the suns and move planets. Human life is overwhelming. And Yisker is the touchstone of that truth. But standing in the middle of a desert, we can help but see what we are. That we are frail and we are small. 
but we are not disposable. If we are to be redeemed and remembered, it will not be by larger buildings or larger cars or a larger number of Instagram followers, but it can be by holding firm to ideas that are large and beautiful. Our Masa, our march, began outside of Arad, and three days later our evening was at a camp five kilometers outside of Masada. We awoke at four that morning, grabbed our equipment. Our plan was to take the snake path that begins on the east side of the mountain and reach the top by sunrise. The stretchers were loaded with weight to, sim- to simulate someone being wounded because in the IDF, no one is left behind. We stepped out into the darkness, and as we made our way up, the immensity of the Dead Sea Basin and the desert unfolded beneath and around us. And as the sun cracked over the mountains of Moab, of Jordan, we reached the top. On Masada, we recalled the last bastion of Jewish resistance to the Roman invaders that had destroyed and overtaken the rest of the country, including Jerusalem and the temple. We recall on Masada how the Roman 10th Legion besieged it for over a year, and only after constructing a massive ramp were they able to reach the top. We recall them storming the front gate, only to find everyone dead inside. But two women escaped and later reported the last words of Eliezer ben Yair, where in front of the entire community they recalled the leader and warrior saying these words. Since we long ago resolved never to be servants to the Romans, nor to anything else other than to God itself. We were the first that revolted, and it is we who are now the last to fight. The Jewish people would have to wait another 2,000 years to resume his fight for freedom. But in 1966, the army general and archaeologist Yigal Yadin undertook massive excavations of Masada, In a book he wrote at that time, he tells of waking early one morning, long before anyone else was up. And with nothing else to do, he grabbed a brush and a trowel and went to work on the southeast corner of the fortress. The work was slow and careful. Dig, brush, inspect. Dig, brush, inspect. He worked by a headlamp. And as the sun began to rise, he removed the lamp and he continued to dig, brush, and inspect, and then dig, and then a thud. With the brush, he excitedly began to wipe away 2,000 years of sand and earth and pulled out from the ground what he had hit. And he lifted it up to the rising sun, and a moment later he felt tears streaming down his cheeks because in his hands were a 2,000-year-old pair of tefillin. And Yadin fell to the ground and tried to imagine the person who owned them how they had packed them on that frightful journey that brought them to the fortress to make that last stand, or the last time that he had warned them of the things that this person had prayed for. And on that morning, I too wondered, on top of Matsara, so many centuries later, I wondered what they would be saying if they could see us now. I wondered how they would understand those terrible final moments that they lived through, how they would understand it now. But I do know 
that they would see their sacrifices like the sacrifices of all those you have loved and you have lost. That they were worthy because we continue and they are not forgotten. Chag Sameach.